Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. How many of you remember recess as being your highlight of the day back in elementary school? Well, would you be surprised to learn that in the last decade, nearly half of all school districts nationwide have either completely eliminated or reduced specific time for recess. Even though more rigorous academic standards and measurements, of course, typically dominate the headlines when it comes to our children's educational future, the importance of playtime continues to be a critical yet often neglected aspect of our developmental and educational growth. Research has shown that students who play develop healthier lifestyles, are more attentive in class, and achieve greater academic, social, and emotional success. And for over 20 years, the nonprofit organization PlayWorks has been the leading national nonprofit leveraging the power of play to transform children's social and emotional health. Their founder and CEO, Jill Violet, is my guest today on the show. You have had over 25 years of experience in the nonprofit sector. Talk about why you started PlayWorks in the first place and what has led it to becoming so successful. Second nonprofit I started. I started my first nonprofit when I was 23 um, and didn't know any better at the Museum of Children's Art, which is still alive and well in Oakland. And in the course of running MoCA, um, I was out in all these schools and, um, you know, uh, ostensibly there to talk about arts education, but I would see the playground and the way that um, it was this sort of chaotic environment that seemed to be really detrimental to the, the learning that was going on in the school. I, I have a very high tolerance. I'm sort of pro-chaos, but, but there's good chaos and there's bad chaos, and I was seeing a lot of the bad chaos. And so um, there was this one particular day where I was waiting to meet with a school principal where MOCA, the, the Children's Art Museum, had a, an arts residency, and she was running late. It was right after lunch, and when she finally emerged from her office with these three little boys who she clearly just been disciplining, uh, she basically went off on how recess and lunchtime had become this super disruptive force in the school day. And she she looked at me and she was like, can't you do something? <laughs> and even though I was there about the arts programming, it did just strike me as such an obvious and uh, immediate way to change the school climate. So that was the genesis of, of PlayWorks. And I think, you know, the, why has it been successful? I, I think it has to do both with just the power of play, that it is sort of the original amateur activity um, that is so accessible and, and presents such a an easy opportunity for especially young adults to go in and have the transformative experience of making a difference but also the play itself you know is this amazing uh, activity that that has survived evolution despite being a risky behavior because it is the way we learn to you know the skills of inclusion and and how to function well socially 
Well, you know, the importance of playtime, you know, it's one of those aspects of our educational focus that often gets pushed to the background. And yet research just shows time and time again that playtime actually enhances learning and improves creativity and helps promote a child's ability to get along with others. And it provides a necessary break from prolonged concentration and academic challenges. And I know you know that, um, speaking more to my listeners. So Give us a little bit of a sense, uh, give us a few examples of what current research is telling us regarding the importance of play for our children's educational and social development. Yeah, there, there was a journal in pediatrics, that was the, and it was really looking at the evidence for why play is so important. And they found that play is essential for, for healthy brain development. They saw that you know it, it's associated with reducing obesity and other associated diseases, increasing vigorous physical activity. Uh, it's play has been proven to help kids manage the stress, and and even it, it's been really called out as one of the most important uh, sort of experiences for mitigating trauma. So you know all the research we're doing around ACEs and adverse childhood experiences. Play is, al- is almost the perfect antidote for, for that, those kind of experiences. Um, there's a lot of research around the role of play in helping families bond. And then um, the one, you know, that's a, it's an interesting one, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of research that points to the connection between play and academic skills. Um, and, and it's funny, I, I always feel a little uneasy about that one because everything doesn't have to be about test scores. But but play does it does seem like it 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 really affects kids' intrinsic motivation and and it really does you can you can't see the the outcomes in the classroom. No, it's very helpful, and I think most people have probably heard and read about some of those reports, but don't realize how much research has been done along those lines. Um, another thing that has come out through research, and it's sad, but not totally surprising to learn that we're moving more and more towards a sedentary lifestyle here in the U.S. Estimates are showing, in fact, that only about half of youth meet the current physical activity guidelines uh, for Americans' recommendation for at least 60 minutes of daily vigorous, or as it's described, moderate-intensity physical activity, according to a report by the National Academies. What kind of results are you seeing with your efforts to reverse this trend through your work? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we we didn't ever really set out initially to be sort of this uh, physical activity uh, that, that that the the vigorous physical activity wasn't initially one of the things we were going for. Um, it was much more focused on the social and the emotional. When we did our randomized control trial a, full, a few years ago, though, we did um, have the kids wearing pedometers, and we did see a really marked increase in, in, in vigorous physical activity. Um, I think it was uh, a 42% increase over uh, schools that didn't have playworks, which was pretty amazing, um, partly because if you if you look at physical education in the country, th- th- that's really been challenged to be able to point to an increase in vigorous physical act- activity through PE, which is, you know, it seems like a more direct way. I think, though, if you were going to pull out how do you get kids to move, I think the the intrinsic motivation question again is so critical right what motivates kids to be out there and running around and kids want choice and voice right and we know that that's part of how you empower them to be drivers of their own education and so what's kind of amazing about the power of play is how interconnected all the outcomes are right that the same experiences that help kids drive uh, academically are the the same kind of experiences that get them moving are the same kind of experiences that um, give them the experiences that 
result in less bullying behaviors and, uh, and greater ability to self-regulate and to resolve conflicts. It's all this uh, very interconnected uh, whole child experience. Well, that's good. In a 2013 evaluation of the implementation and impact of PlayWorks programming, it was conducted by Stanford and uh, their Mathematica policy research uh, revealed this. Uh, compared to non-PlayWorks schools, PlayWorks schools are 43% different in the way teachers rated bullying and discipline issues. And then there's a 20% difference in the way teachers rated students' feeling, feelings of safety on the playground. And then a 43% difference in the amount of time spent in vigorous physical activity during recess. I mean, that's pretty um, impressive results, I would say. And then, of course, Stanford, uh, they're somewhat of the gold standard when it comes to research. So maybe talk about these results. What do they mean for today's schools? And explain what it means uh, and what makes PlayWorks programs so effective. Yeah, I mean, I think, one of the sort of key insights uh, is that it really matters how it feels, right? So um, if you look at the difference between schools where kids are really thriving and schools where kids struggle, um, it, I think you can really tease out the intentional design that goes into student experience. And I think, so if you look at our um, the data around uh, reductions in bullying behaviors, increased sense of safety. We, we also um, found that we recovered instructional time. Uh, it, I think all of it comes down to like the intention with which we go out with recess, out to recess, and really leverages a chance for kids to build their own skills uh, around leadership, inclusion, teamwork, and and, and then. If, when you've really done this in a thoughtful way, you then see that kids actually, um, they, they bring to bear a, a sense of interconnection and um, just a, a, a willingness to be in community and to be seen and to see others. And, and it has this sort of outsized impact on the whole school day. So it's, it feels to me, again, it's just this deeply interconnected, how do you intentionally design the experience to bring out the best in kids? And then how do you use the most obvious, simple sort of tools like play that are so accessible and that ultimately just make it easier for teachers to do their jobs and for students to do theirs, right, which is fundamentally to learn. Hey, everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. I also want to make sure you knew about a new feature. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows it will be actually sent right to your inbox and that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show the other thing i'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show do not hesitate to email me i'd love to hear from you just do that through our website my email rob at ccofpc.org well thanks again for listening now back to the show we know it's interesting because you've got such good research and you've got a lot of pedigree if you will 
I'm curious, when you go to schools and you offer to provide Playworks for their school, um, my guess is, now you're all over the place, you're around the country, but um, you're obviously not in every single school in America. Have you ever been turned down by a school when you've offered to provide this program? And if so, like, why would they turn you down? Like, what's maybe the skepticism that you run into occasionally? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, I wouldn't say we, it's not so much turned down. I think what we find is that it's a crowded landscape, right? So you go out to visit a school and you're talking about what Playworks does, um, and people are like, oh, you know, I've, there's so much pressure on achieving academic outcomes or that, you know, I, I'm, we're a school who's in a position where we really need to uh, get our test scores up or and then, and then some schools are like, you know, no, we got the play thing on lockdown. Um, and I, and I, what's been interesting is we've, we've tried then to, um, but mostly though what I hear, though I have to tell you is when I go out to school, people are like, oh, you're working on recess. Thank you. We, what, what do you have? And then, you know, there, there are questions of the economics of it, right? So, uh, across the country, the different formulas that are, uh, that are in play around, on how people pay for things in schools and how that all works out is, it's remarkably complicated. So we've, in response to that, tried to offer a breadth of different programs that, that really help people uh, meet them where they are, right, and then give them the skills and tools to really address, uh, you know, the challenges they may face in recess. And if, if it's even a great recess, how they can even make it better. Um, so we have both direct service where we have a full-time human going into schools and then we have, um, actually now we have an online, uh, a digital platform, two actually ways that works. We have Playworks U, which is a subscription service where schools can get ongoing uh, training online. And, and then we have a free, uh, do it, sort of a DIY approach called recesslab.org. And that's, a, that's an opportunity for uh, educators uh, to go on and learn about how to assess their own recess and then given that assessment, to then do sort of targeted uh, strategies and activities that then give kids and, and give educators the, the skills they need to make recess something that com- contributes dramatically to the school day. Uh, so I was going to say that the only time, sometimes I think people are like uh, a little skeptical or reticent. Um, they might be worried that if this is too structured. And I, and I always laugh because I'm like, have you ever been on a playground with a couple hundred kids? Yeah, I don't know what you imagine we could do, but it really would be a superhuman effort to really make it anything more than um, really positive chaos. And and then the other, sometimes people are like, no, you know, we we need to, we really need to buckle down. It's really more about rigorous academics and butts and seats. And so it's it's those two extremes are the are the are the sort of viewpoints that prompt skepticism. But in general, educators. If the closer people are to the experience of recess, the more they immediately get what we're doing and, and want to be a part. That's excellent. Good. No, that's interesting. Um, okay, now let's move to fundraising. You know, it's something that every nonprofit executive deals with, right? Where does the majority of your support come from? And tell us about your journey. Uh, how have you grown this organization from the ground up to becoming financially sustainable? I'm sure this is a challenge. Yeah. Well, so we've always had a strong uh uh, emphasis on earned income. So in this this current fiscal year, we're about 60 62% earned revenue. So then we're fundraising the 38%. And I, I'd say that actually, for me, having that solid foundation of earned revenue um, 
It both uh, contributes dramatically to program quality. There is nothing like a principal who has paid for the programming that's happening out on her playground to ensure that, you know, expectations are high and that uh, we can really hold staff accountable and really um, really dig into where it works and where it doesn't. So that that really does create a level of partnership with the schools that I think is invaluable to running the best quality programming. Uh, and then I think funders really recognize that, wow, you've got, you're serving a lot of low-income schools that are coming up with a, a good chunk of cash to pay for this program. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a little bit of them putting their money where their mouth is, and if that's really what their investment is, that that inspires funders to to support that. Um, so then, and then within the sort of fundraising reality, we are doing a, a you know the regular mix of foundations, individuals, uh, corporations, both corporate uh, foundations as well as working with corporations in their marketing departments. That's great. Now, how much of you use social media in your um, ability to do some fundraising? Has it been successful? What has worked for you? We've done some. I think it's probably an area where we could uh, grow a lot, um, uh, you know, especially with individual giving. We definitely, uh, I know we just did a campaign in Washington, D.C., where uh, the, some of the board members there were doing a, a, a campaign on Facebook, and, and that went really well. And different regions have done different uh, different efforts. Um, we have the 23 offices across the country, so um, they each individually were, were one 501c3, but they're they all get to sort of drive to some extent their own strategies. Um, it, and, you know, America is this sort of, it's a big country. And I, I am constantly, as someone who, you know, raises money for, as a profession, the difference between sort of fundraising in Northern California versus Southern California, let alone between Salt Lake and Atlanta, it, it's, it, they're very, the, the kids are very, very similar, and the grown-ups are pretty different. <laughs> that is really interesting. You've definitely seen a regional difference when it comes to fundraising that's pretty significant. You have to change your strategy, I'm assuming, then, based on the region you're in. Yeah, and then it's interesting in terms of hiring executive directors in every region. Like, the sort of, you would, one might think that there'd be sort of one profile for who's going to be the best possible ED for a Playworks office, and yet... Um, you know, they're, they're very, they're different sort of approaches to everything from managing humans to, uh, and to fundraising to, to sort of working with school districts that, that really are pretty dramatically different region by region. How do you go about vetting out the right people? Do you have a, um, a metrics that you use or do you lean into local leaders or other nonprofit leaders in a particular city that can help vet out candidates for you? Like, tell us about the process because it sounds like you're right. You have to get someone who really fits that particular region well so they can succeed. So maybe talk about that a bit. Yeah. I mean, we'd, we'd have local boards in every region so they weigh in and contribute. Uh, we have, a, you know, we have regional uh, we have managers uh, who, uh, based at the national headquarters, who um, then you know are overseeing the folks, and then um, so we 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 use some some basic sort of analytic tools like a predictive index around what are patterns that we have seen be successful in this exec- in the executive director role, uh, and then you know the interview process is pretty rigorous, um, both you know from folks who will manage as well as having the team. Uh, on the ground sometimes interviewing along with local board members. Uh, we rely a lot on 
our network um, on in the ground on the ground to like really weigh in about people they think will be successful given you know who's supporting us and and how how things are going in any given region. I mean, you know, I, I think hiring is one of the most important things that you can do as an entrepreneur, also one of the least well understood and, you know, something I always um, i am hoping that we're getting better at. But, uh, you know, some, sometimes you get really lucky and sometimes you know you've got the right person and you're, you're not quite right. And, you know, humans are complicated. And so also just trying to figure out what can we do really well to support whoever is in that role and bring out the best in them and and really uh, continue to you know give them the professional development they need to thrive in the role. Um, okay, so you, during the school year, I understand you have around 700 employees. That is a leadership challenge in and of itself. Plus you have the geographic spread that you have with your particular nonprofit. Um, I know you talk a bit about on your website and what I've read about you about the DNA of your organization. You create a culture that's really critical to Playworks to make it successful. So what is the DNA of your organization's culture and how have you both built it and successfully sustained that culture? Yeah, so I want to answer that in two parts. First is that um, because we have a, you know, we we focus on the school year, our 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 employee base fluctuates wildly. So we are actually right now in this moment in the process of hiring about 300 people for the coming school year. So I um, would love to encourage your listeners to check out uh, playworks.org and look at the job opportunities that are that are open for us or if, refer us to other people you know who might be great at working with kids. Um, and then the the sort of the DNA of the culture it's it's a really um, it's a really important and interesting thing and uh, for me and we're very thoughtful about this culture. I feel like one of the things that's been such a a, a boon about doing the work of play as you know the thing that we do is being able to infuse that into our grown up work experience as well. And, and in fact, building off of that. Um, Playworks has just launched a new subsidiary called Workswell, which is bringing play design and storytelling into corporate America. So doing all sorts of trainings, um, really trying to figure out how do you help businesses to really put the human capacities of play design and storytelling at the center and to intentionally design organizational experiences, the work experiences, um, in, a, in the much the same way that I was sort of describing that we've done all these years in schools, right? So bringing everything we've learned about how you change culture in schools through play, but also um, by encouraging people to bring their full selves and to tell their stories and to to actually believe that there are design levers that they can can pull to to really in the moment make the experience of work, whether that's a meeting or onboarding or giving feedback, all of those things, to believe that you can put people at the center of those, that ultimately then you build a culture at work, which is either profitable if you're a for-profit or impactful if you're an impact-based organization. And I think that's what we've done, sometimes really well at Playworks. Sometimes we've, we've, um, we've lost sight of it, but I think bringing the intention to it uh, is the key. Well, my guest again today is Jill Violet, founder and CEO of Playworks, the leading national nonprofit leveraging the power of play in America's schools today. If people want to find out more about you, more about your organization, maybe they want to look for a job, uh, where would you send them? What's the best way to get in contact with you? Sure. Well, so 
playworks.org is a great place to start, and you can connect with me through there. Um, personally, I'm jillviolet.com. You can check um, my website out. Um, the new business I mentioned, Workswell, is at workswell.biz. And then I will make one last pitch. About three years ago, I launched another new nonprofit called Substantial Classrooms, which is based on our experience of doing Playworks. I kept having principals ask if they could borrow their Playworks coach to fill in as a substitute teacher. So I got to spend a year at Stanford at the D School um, really digging into the question of how might we redesign the way schools and districts recruit, train, and support substitute teachers. And so launched that a few years ago, and uh, that website is substantialclassrooms.org. Jill, thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks for all you're doing. I mean, you really are making an impact, and uh, you're investing in this next generation. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for having me. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.